What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and today we've got with us um, pinch hitting for Kiara Mitchell. We've got Alex Otte. Hey, Otte. Hey. <laughs> Gabby Magnuson. Hey, what's up? Pete McKenzie. Hey, And Jake Dello. Greetings. So, two quick hits before we get into the show. One is that, you know, if you thought that the South Korean left, which basically controls the government right now, if you thought they were pro-China, you would be dead wrong, which is funny, not funny, it's strange and not surprising because North Korea also is not pro-China, but in like the popular wisdom, I think we kind of think of, of both Koreas as being like more aligned with China or like we worry about that. And uh, it's true that like South Korea, the South Korean left, not exactly pro-American, but Moon Jong-in, who's this kind of big, prominent and iconoclastic uh, progressive in South Korea, he's a professor at Yonsei University, but he's also a uh, advisor to the Blue House. He basically went pretty hard in the paint on China the other day in a uh, leftist news publication called Han Kyore. And... Mm. He was calling China out like I, I kind of haven't seen from South Koreans before, even okay. from South like South Korean conservatives are, you know, not friends of China. And I've never seen them go after China like this. It was very interesting, very kind of aligned with my view. Like he called out their hegemonic ambitions. He said Belt and Road Initiative is neo-imperialist. He said that China has forsaken all claims to like ethical and moral leadership because of its uh, aggression and heavy handedness. He thinks that Chinese exceptionalism is like US exceptionalism, except way worse because American exceptionalism <laughs> at, at least had like okay. a claim to universal rights, like universal yeah. <laughs> benefits of being part of an American system. Yeah. The Chinese exceptionalism does not like this Tianxia bullshit does not unless you believe it i don't know but like it doesn't make any um <laughs> claims to provide universal coverage to anybody it's just like we're special we're different do what we say and that's not me saying that although i would probably co-sign that it's him saying this right in a leftist publication in south korea and he's a very prominent guy man so this is interesting south korea is weird in the sense that long term the left is just not uh, ally of the United States in the traditional sense, but it's like they also don't want to mm. be part of a Sinocentric order. So this is yeah. the South Korean version of, of hedging, you know, like it's they're still very nationalistic, whether they're on the left or the right. And so it's it's worth having a proper understanding of, of South Korea, I guess. It, sorry. Um. So the South Korea usually play the hedging game pretty well. Or yeah, but not, it's it looks really? different than it looks with um, other actors because they're a close oh, yeah. U.S. ally. So it's like you find ways to hedge within your basic strategic alignment with the U.S. And so like you're not strategically aligning with China against the U.S. and you don't ever really like oppose the U.S., but you diversify, you say no to U.S. requests anytime you think it's going to create like risks or costs for you. You're basically not, you end up showing that you're not a loyal ally. And we see that more and more from everybody. Um, I've argued before that that's kind of like the natural tendency in Asia is to try and hedge. And the like, historical U.S. alliances are this kind of anomaly in history, one that may not survive, you know, indefinitely. Who knows? Anyways, very interesting. Does the fact that South Korea is still trying to hedge sort of show that old alliances don't mean as much as we thought they did? Or maybe us, we in the West thought they did, being, you know, South Korea with the United States and North Korea with China? Because I would have thought that they wouldn't even need to hedge. They, the, where they are is pretty clear. Well, the context is king here because South Korea, mm. I mean, South Korea is getting extorted by the United States, if, yeah. like in real time. And the Defense Department, uh, I, I can't remember if we talked about this, but in recent weeks, 
people I worked with in the Defense Department have gone on the record publicly with media interviews saying we, re- we need to rethink our force posture in Northeast Asia. Oh, we need to, like, they're laying the groundwork kind of rhetorically to implement the Trumpian kind of troop withdrawal. Yeah. And it's happening in the midst of an impasse in negotiations for burden sharing, the extortionist demands of the Trump administration. Um, South Korea is not going to meet them. It might compromise, but I don't know that Trump will. So like the worst case scenario is that South Korea rebuffs the US and then Trump is forced to decide whether to reveal his threats to be bluffs or whether he actually does have to pull troops out. And I think everybody is thinking like it's no big deal to him if we pull troops out. So they're laying the groundwork for that. And so South Korea sees that and it's like, oh, well, we built our fucking national security strategy around the presumption of U.S. forward presence and U.S. alliance. (laughs) So this is a problem. And so, like, of course, they're going to hedge, you know, but it's remarkable to not be pro China in that context. Mm. Like you are feeling acute forms of like abandonment from the United States. And still you're going hard in the paint on China. Still you're being like fairly anti-Chinese. You know what I mean? So that's yeah. that's that's worth noting, you know? Second quick hit. Uh, this really came out of left field for me. It's been an education, actually. Palau, the Pacific Island nation. The president has explicitly and quite directly requested the United States to build military bases. And that sounds strange. Usually countries don't invite, you know, what would look like military occupation. Uh, And especially not in like the Trump era. Like I don't think our, you know, soft power has ever been so weak, poor. But um, it turns out that the United States has this long running arrangement um, to provide, be the exclusive security provider through something called the Compact of Free Association with Palau, Micronesia, and the Marshall Islands. And then, of course, Hawaii is part of the Union, and Guam is a U.S. territory. Um, And so America has this position of de facto dominance in the Pacific. Um, And one of the ways that it has secured that is through this Compact of Free Association, and it is uh, I, I started investigating it when this request came out. It is very much an exclusive sphere of influence. These countries don't maintain militaries themselves, and they explicitly have agreed that the United States would be like the sole provider of their security and that they will not enter into military relationships or anything like that with any other countries without U.S. permission. Spheres of influence are generally bad. They overlap a lot with with empires and with colonialism. Uh, And the United States has been like wildly derelict in providing for the um, the well-being of the like the human security of these of these nations. And the fact that these nations have like outsourced their security very explicitly to the United States sort of like I get the historical context. It kind of troubles me. I don't know exactly, I'm not sorted about what to do about this because recognizing a sphere of influence, I my response is like, well, you have to deconstruct that. The Compact of Free Association is is an unfair bargain, even if they are opting into it. And it's the only the only sources of like revenue for these countries, and this is the double-edged sword, is the US military. And so we provide funding to them okay. to their public policy. But it's via it's via, you know, the defense budget and yeah, the the main source of employment that these these countries have is the U.S. military. So they're under the Compact of Free Association. They're allowed to join the U.S. military. And a lot of them do. And the military is a great opportunity for some. Right. I took it. This is me. But if that's your only path to like social mobility, that's a co-opted system. Like that's a system that is skewed toward militarism. There has to be other avenues available too. And we've never provided those. There's all kinds of structural violence problems that are part of this American sphere of influence. 
But most importantly, we cannot counter a Chinese sphere of influence in any moral sense if we maintain them ourselves. So I still don't know what to think about this because mm -hmm. there's like so much good and bad happening at the same time. And the truth is that Palau, because it doesn't have a fucking military, is concerned about Chinese encroachment in the Pacific. So like, this is our backyard. What do we do? We got to counter it. What's the best tool to counter it? It seems like it's the Compact of Free Association, which, and if we're going to be the security guarantor for these countries, we probably need bases there. So like, I'm in, I'm pulled in all kinds of directions on this. I don't know what you guys think. The part that scares me is the fact that they feel they need to ask. That's the part that worries me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, it's in the Pacific. Like you said, it's our backyard and it's just, I don't like it when my bad guy gets militarized by two great powers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this is weird. Like, uh, Palau has neighbors who are mm. experiencing Chinese settler colonialism right now. And yeah. in, yeah. in Palau itself, the, there's a lot less of that from China, but they get a lot from Taiwan, but because they do so much business with Taiwan, they're a target of China. And so that yeah. this this whole game is like I don't know it's very complicated. It's interesting in a way that like I wish I was more distant from. Do you really think that it's something the US actually will take them up on at like considering the US has been pulling out of kind of like the Pacific area for ages? Like is Palau like, you know, one of those big on their list out of all the Pacific islands, of course. Yeah. Kind of like, you know. The Pacific has been a blind spot for the US strategically for several decades even this compact yeah, like it was sure. signed in the 80s but you know it it was super low profile it wasn't part of like the reagan administration's theory for stability or whatever it was just this like uh, bureaucratic thing that happened in the background like it didn't get a lot of attention and so like we've been pretty derelict and in the age of like indo-pacific rah-rah anti-china we've gotten very much yeah. more in the game but it may be too little too late. It's not clear. We haven't had a lot of thought about how we play a competition game in the Pacific, even though we have territory there, which makes us uniquely invested, you know. So I think I think people are starting to take this more seriously, uh, even in the Trump administration. It's just not clear what it all means. Oh, wow. You know. Yeah, for sure. Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Van to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. All right, for prediction market this week, will there be any international sanctions levied against Serbia for the open military relationship with Belarus and Russia before December? Good question. I don't think so, partly because we're apparently America is in Russia's pocket at the moment. And so like aligning with Belarus and Russia is not that there doesn't seem to be any urgency in U.S. policy uh, when it comes to this, what's unfolding in Belarus right now. So I think maybe we're whatever's happening on the ground is just it's too fast and remote for us to be able to do anything about. And then like layered on top of that, the president is a puppet of Putin. It's it's scary how much he's a puppet. And Serbia has been in the news. Well, some would say for all the wrong reasons lately. Yeah. And funnily enough, they've just come in the news yesterday uh, where Vujic sort of went back on the agreement he made between uh, Serbia and Kosovo and Jerusalem, because he stated to Israel that if they recognize Kosovo as a nation, that they will not recognize Jerusalem. So even when they're being nice, they still can't seem to recognize Kosovo as a place that exists. And Serbia's kind of given the middle finger to the EU, and they're super, super duper dependent on China. Not a great actor and not a great situation. No, it's very unfortunate. Question two, will any resolutions be found between India and China regarding this week's border disputes before the end of the month? So I'm going to say no, but I also don't think that it's going to, or I think the likelihood of escalating to a larger conflict is quite low. There's this great article in... Texas National Security Review, I think it was from last year, maybe 2018, but they talked about like uh, nuclear crises and they're like, all nuclear crises are not equal. And yeah. there's a reason why policymakers and the media even worry so much more about some conflicts than others. And so like the, the, the 
modern great contrast here is between like the North Korean nuclear crisis versus what's happening with India and China. And on the North Korea thing, everybody was like laser focused on, holy shit, this thing could go live and we could have nuclear war. You don't see a lot of concerns about that with the India-China thing. And that's kind of fair enough, right? And so this article talks about, I'll, if I can remember, I'm going to link it in the show notes, but I probably won't remember. <laughs> Sorry, guys. And <laughs> the, I, I started teaching this article. I liked it so much. But the India-China thing, it's like, you know, there's a lot of built-in restraint on both sides. This conflict yeah. is happening in a very remote territory so it's like far away from prying eyes and cameras and large population centers signaling between india and china signaling in ir is always kind of difficult but it can be more or less difficult and it's less difficult in this india china case right whereas military mm. signaling with north korea was very opaque and hard to interpret and all this stuff and like for india and china there's an you could argue that like both sides have pretty strong incentives to not opt into wars with each other because they mm. they both have other threats to worry about and so if there's if it's a, if they're each each other's secondary threat which is for china india definitely is a secondary problem for india i don't know um how pakistan versus china comes shakes out but all those reasons you add them up and it, it looks like a fairly stable situation. If anything, it's kind of surprising that this conflict has bubbled up the way that it has this year. Yeah. Um, so the smart money is on this thing stabilizing, but remaining quite tense and unresolved. But, you know, anything could happen. And there's still like that sort of background risk of nuclear war. So who knows? Yeah, for the listeners who haven't been following it, which I'm sure 90% of you have just by proxy listening to the podcast, uh, the India-China dispute has been slowly escalating over a period of a few months now. It started off with fists, then it went to sort of some medieval free-for-all, and now it's getting to guns. How many steps above trading fire is it before you can viably say that nuclear exchange as a threat like a, a, a serious threat that we need to take seriously but yeah i mean so the stability instability paradox should apply here which is to yeah. say like the fact that both sides are mutually deterred from a larger conflict frees them up to do the low level to have low level instability tactical instability which means you're mm, going to okay. see them beating each other to death you're going to see them shooting rifles at each other but that shouldn't escalate to like what the Cargill War was between Pakistan and India in 99, mm. where it's like you actually have large scale military mobilizations and you have actual operations being conducted against each other where you're trying to occupy territory and attrit, kill each other's forces. Like what's happening now, it's basically a standoff where you're like pissing on each other, which is not good. I mean, this is not a good situation. Yeah, there's yeah, there's not, risk here. There's risk here. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm not fucking sanguine. Nobody's ever accused me of being sanguine. Let's be clear. But in the order, in the hierarchy of nightmares that I currently am looking at in the world, this is like on the lower end. Please don't be wrong about that. Please, I hope I'm not wrong about that. <laughs> That's that's how we measure things here at Undiplomatic Podcast. Yeah. How much, how many nightmares they give us? How nightmares? And that's how they, yeah. yeah. Well, this the last question this week for prediction market sort of gave me a reminder of 1984 Newspeak a little bit because they must be employing some of it, still calling it the Nobel Peace Prize. Will Trump win the Nobel Peace Prize? I mean, no, <laughs> obviously not. Right? <laughs> I just, I don't under like. How the fuck is he even getting nominated for this? Like, there, there's something rotten in Denmark, you're corrupt in this in the first place that he would be nominated. Mm. It's so farcical. Well, I only asked the question because crazier things have happened. Like, they have awarded the Nobel Peace Prize to uh, a U.S. president that drone strike the most people. And Henry Kissinger. Crazy, crazy, yeah, and Henry, <laughs> Henry Kissinger, how could I forget? Peacemonger himself. The prestige of the Nobel Prize is the like the I don't know what the phrase is. The rose is off the bloom or whatever. It's fucked. It has tarnished itself. Right. It's it's prestigious in the sense that everybody knows what it is. And it comes with like a two million dollar prize. 
So it's like if they want to give oh. me a Nobel Peace Prize, you better believe I'm going to take it. But they give it they literally give it to people who have body counts on their name. So like yeah. how this is not a serious thing. Well, this prediction market hopeful <laughs> as always. Yeah. Time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. All right, for Stay Off Twitter this week, I got two. The first from John Wolfstall, who was in the Obama administration with me. I'm almost positive he was at like a, a higher level than me. Uh, and he's now a senior advisor at Global Zero. He's very much in the Biden camp. And he just says in a tweet... Trump is about to award a single source $100 billion contract to build a new generation of nuclear tipped missiles to protect a country where people don't have health care and kids in virtual school have to poach on free Wi-Fi at Taco Bell. And Damn. that Ooh. is like I make a reference to children of men whenever I talk about dystopia. But there's something even worse about this. It's like it's like RoboCop world. It's so disastrous, apocalyptic, and a lot of people are just like living through this, you know, day-to-day -day normal life. But like the hypocrisy of public policy that allows for this degree of structural violence against people in society, the individual citizens, while continuing to pour their taxpayer money into, to divert taxpayer money into these very questionable strategic bets on military modernization mm. of the nuclear arsenal, you need to justify and better rationalize and get political buy-in for these giant, expensive, strategic nuclear questions. There's so much at risk with it. And then on top of that, even if there's a strategic rationale for these weapons, you can't hide the fact that you are diverting much needed resources from civil society mm -hmm. and so like there something has to give here like this is not sustainable this is this is what it looks like to live in a kleptocracy a heavily exactly. militarized exactly. kleptocracy uh so something's got to give i don't hopefully i don't know that changes in january 2021 but we'll see i was always very cautious in the first few years of the trump presidency not to use the word fascist because it was overused and I felt like we could find a better one. But over the past three weeks, just seeing the actions the Trump presidency has taken and going so far as to de essentially defund the post office because he doesn't want to get election. He doesn't want uh, them to be used in the election. He's using textbook fascist tactics and kleptocracy is another textbook fascist tactic they'll always use. And and it's just becoming so obvious, it's almost painful. Like, he's got paramilitaries on the streets. It's becoming a fucking dystopia, and it's pretty scary and sad. Yeah, no, I, I have I have not been reluctant to use the fascist label because I call what mm. I see, and I see it. Exactly. So <laughs> this, is, this is where we are now. Uh, it's scary, so let's call a thing by its right name. Second tweet from Elise Hu, a friend, not... Uh, I'm sure she doesn't listen to the pod, but a friend, she, she was at national public radio and I, I don't even know what the hell she does now. Cause she's got like a million things going on. I guess she's a Ted talks host and she does stuff for vice TV. I don't know, but she, she writes looking at the orange sky nightmare in fucking the Bay area in San Francisco. I don't know if you guys have seen this, the, yeah, yeah. it's, crazy looking it's blade runner it's fuck it, like again dystopia like i've never in my life in anywhere seen images of an entire metropolis covered in orange it's the weirdest spookiest thing it's like you it's it's like nature is telling you you want to act like everything's normal fuck you you have to look at this you have yeah. to see it yeah and so in response to that she says, these images of San Francisco are so heartbreaking. When I lived in a polluted Asian megalopolis, um, she lived in South Korea, air quality concerns were daily and reframed my notion of freedom as public health. Public health equals freedom. Um, and she had, a, she had like a blog post that she wrote that she links to in the tweet where she talks about this, like, I mean, it's, several, it's a couple years old now, but she talks about this her public health as freedom conception, right? And it's like, we're in this age where it's like, people have the balls to ask me, 
why climb why people on the left think that climate change is a national security issue and it's like yeah. are you fucking serious anymore like how can you ask that now you know but they want to securitize everything else why can't they just fucking have this one too these fires yeah, like are they... destroying California. Yeah. They're the result of environmental degradation and patterns in climate change. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. And um, and the fact that, like, public policy is not doing anything about this, you know? And with the Bay Area in particular, they had firefighting helicopter units that were diverted to Afghanistan as part of our troop presence in Afghanistan, making them unavailable to fight the fires in California, man. And so once again, you have these like old school international commitments of like American global dominance or whatever, while the empire is crumbling from the inside, at least hits the nose on the head. Very freaky. All right, like looking cool. at the photos of San Francisco, genuinely, I think there've been like a million comparisons all over Twitter for sure. But it's just, it genuinely feels like someone put like those bad Hollywood filters over it just to show you, hey, this is the worst case scenario. Yeah. And it kind of literally is. It's terrifying. Hashtag no filter, man. Okay, sweet. So cracking on. My first tweet of the week comes from Pat Blanchfield, who's an associate faculty member over at Brooklyn Institute and a visiting scholar at NYU. His tweet is pretty legit and goes, sure, the illegitimate president is effectively using biological warfare as a tool of mass liquidation and deploying security forces and deputized vigilantes to crush resistance. But who can say if this is more of a threat than the distressing illiberalism of online <laughs> cancel culture? Holy shit. And if that doesn't sum up the Trumpian bullshit going on right now. the the Oh, my God. There's like a little bit of hyperbole here, you know, like liquidation. Yeah. And biological. <laughs> but, oh, it's good. That's pretty fucking I mean, intense. It gets the I point know. across, though. Like yeah. when you think about like oh cancel culture is such a problem and like what a threat to liberalism you know what's more of a threat to liberalism hundred thousand plus body counts and a failure to yeah. do anything about it you know like the diversion of money that could be used for building up american capital in the form of education or national infrastructure or public safety and being diverted to fucking nuclear weapons man and in that context to be worried, like with all the shit going down in the world right now, and even just within America by itself, the idea that like a bunch of fucking millennials and Gen Zers decide <laughs> to censor people who are racist and fucking sexist. That's the biggest yeah. problem. That's the biggest problem. It's so, like also like a buddy. I, I, I'm not a fan of cancel culture um, myself, but a buddy of mine raised a very, is, yeah. very good point about how it is basically a weapon of the week. It's the only tool that people who are just extremely disenfranchised have in political discourse because they don't have proper representation in government. They don't have access to levers of power. They don't have resources in any meaningful sense to push back on political processes that are that keep producing just rampant unfairness. And so what do they have? They've got their ability to sort of like collective action on the internet. And that takes the form of cancel culture. So it's like, if you think of cancel culture as like a weapon of the week, it's a very different thing than being like, well, it's proto-fascism, you know? So like, I don't know. That was, it's interesting perspective. It's just a warped sense of consumer activism, I guess. It's like, Cancel culture has been around forever. It's not really a new thing. And that's why. It, yeah, it's a new label. I I, it's, a yeah, it's a new It's a new label. But remember, they canceled the Beatles for saying they were bigger than Jesus. Yeah. Like they were burning records all over the country. <laughs> and that's, if that's not the equivalent of like a Twitter storm nowadays. Yeah. I, I, I don't really know what is. Yeah. It was one of those things with cancel culture. I'm never sure if it's like one collective movement or if it's like multiple ones so because it's like some senses it's like yeah you kind of make points you know some people like you just gotta block them out but then in other cases it's kind of like how do you know if you've gone too far kind of deal 
Yeah. But, uh, I mean, the thing is, it's organic. People, the the sort of like white glove liberals, cosmopolitan liberals mm-hmm. who, you know, value civil discourse above all else, even when fucking Rome is burning. Yeah. They're, they yeah. view it basically as a digital mob. And so they come from this tradition of liberalism that's very elitist, liberalism that's almost like anti-democratic because they see them they see f- uh, manifestations of democracy as mob rule and so i feel like there are elements of truth in that but that's kind of hyperbolizing what cancel culture is and it's this organic tactic that's being used here and there and they are zooming out and being like it's everywhere so i, I don't know i'm not trying to like weigh in definitively on cancel culture but you know it's a thing <laughs> yeah, for sure Moving on to the second tweet of the week that I've got. It's kind of somehow both lighter and kind of depressing as hell. So this one comes from... It's, it's uh, a fun yeah, one, though. It's the perfect undiplomatic man. <laughs> yeah, That's so it. undiplomatic. We try. Put that on the t-shirt. Yeah. Um, so anyway, this one comes from Professor Paul Musgrave, who's an assistant professor of political science over at the University of Massachusetts, Armourst. So his tweet reads... This movie is slowly aging better. And get this, uh, attached to the tweet is a screen cap from a scene in Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, uh, where (laughs) Sidious tells Gunray, I know, this shit's so good, where Sidious tells Gunray that I have the Senate bogged down in procedures. And in case anyone's wondering, you can see this this scene 18 minutes and 49 seconds into the movie. Wow, that's research. Yeah, I did. I worked really hard for this. It's pretty good, though, like if you watch the entire movie and it's almost like a new drinking game every time you can actually compare uh, the Phantom Menace scenes with like, oh, hey, that's happening in American politics. It's kind of depressing. And that's, you know, but um, I was going to say this tweet, Van, is this like an example of art imitates life or life imitates obvious masterpiece? Well, so there's like so many threads here. And to save time, <laughs> I'm just going to focus on like one or two. Um, yeah. the. So I wrote a chapter in a book about Star Wars strategy like a couple years ago. And it was my chapter was specifically about how the Galactic Republic fell, like how it how it became the Galactic Empire. And so the Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones are the two crucial movies. They're the most important ones in the whole Star Wars universe. But for people of like I'm elder millennial of my generation and for Gen Xers, it is heresy. To say that those first movies are episodes one and two, that those were like the best. They they think they get shit on all the time. And so Paul Musgrave is of my generation and he is warming up to what my position is, which is like, these are the most interesting movies of all. It's not like the acting is, is better or something. It's these stories are better, you know? And one of the reasons characters, well, yeah, the Jar Jar debate, let's not go there. (laughs) but like this is i cannot imagine anything in sci-fi being so close to reality than this whole galactic republic to empire thing and what i what i the thing i argue in my chapter was that the reason why the galactic republic fell is because it was structured as an empire already in a relational sense there was a core and a periphery and heterogeneous contracting and governance through local intermediaries. It was an empire, but only in structure. The What it was missing was the demagogue opportunist who could slide in and then exploit that structure to make it an empire. It didn't take much to turn the republic into an empire because it was already kind of set up that way informally. And so like that was the danger. And like I was trying not to... I wrote this in like 2016 or 2017. I wasn't trying to go overboard, but I was like, look, America has relations in its foreign policy that are also structured like empire. There is a risk that some demagogue slides in and fucking activates that. And then poof, Republic turns empire and it can happen very quickly. And so like I, to me, I've always worried that like, this is a little too close to home. It seems like Paul might agree now. So that's cool. Shout out. Uh, yeah, so like I'm worried about uh, if if Trump wins or like if Biden doesn't win and then post Trump, Trump is too stupid to be Darth Sidious. But the 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 Trump 2.0 could very well be Darth Sidious, and that's that's concerning. So is this why people call us nerds? 
Is it? <laughs> I think it's wrong. <laughs> is this the reason? So, so who's Jar Jar? Like, if we're going to draw parallels, who, who in modern politics who... best suits Jar Jar? That's a big question. That's a very big question. Because say what you will about Jar Jar. I hate the fucking man. But he is more sympathetic than Trump. Yeah, and Trump he's an is ambassador not Jar Jar. See, to me, that would be a compliment. But if to anyone else, being Jar Jar Banks would be a fucking death. <laughs> I don't know. We'll put a pin in this in this question and maybe turn it over to the audience. Find, who, who's Jar Jar in modern <laughs> politics? <laughs> Let's jump into armchair analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. So we, this week we're going to look at Is America a Myth? An article by Rowan Wright in The New Yorker. And this isn't one of our traditional foreign policy-oriented pieces, but I thought it was useful because I think it takes a really constructivist approach to the concept of America. Mm. And it's almost impossible now to conceptualize American foreign policy without understanding the weaknesses of American domestic policy and American social dysfunction. So from that perspective, it seemed like a really interesting piece. And it's worth reading the way that um, that Wright starts this piece. She writes, the United States feels like it's unraveling. It's not just because of a toxic election season, a national crisis of a race, unemployment and hunger in the land of opportunity, or a pandemic that's killing tens of thousands every month. The foundation of our nation has deepening cracks possibly too many to repair anytime soon, or perhaps at all, which, I mean, I, I don't know, every time I hear just the <laughs> the layer cake of shit crises that the world is undergoing, or even America is undergoing, it's terrifying. Yeah. But Wright draws on um, the historian, or the scholar, Colin Woodard, who notes that there have been many different Americas throughout and during every period of American history. So each with different origin stories and value sets, you know, the Dutch around New York or the British in various areas or Native Americans, or, you know, there's all these very diverse different communities. And the United States was an accident of history, he said, largely because those distinct subcultures shared an external threat from the British. And so, when those external threats fade away or when they're not enough to cover up the divisions that still exist between those distinct subcultures, breakup of the nation threatens. It threatened in the 1930s, it threatened in the 1960s. I mean, this is just even in the 20th century, not to say, you know, the Civil War. And it feels like it's threatening again. There's, you know, Texit or Calexit or Rexit or all of the different kinds of state secessionist movements or individual secessionist movements. Yeah. As the historian David Blight says, we're definitely not united. And even if it's not secession, he says, in the interior of our minds and our communities, we are already in a period of slow evolving secession in ways that are deeper than ideology, mm. ideology and political beliefs. We are tribes with at least two or more sources of information, facts, narratives, and stories that we live in. And so either you're facing practical secession, of which there seems a non-zero chance, which is not something I would have said of, I would have said before. But at the very least, you're facing social dysfunction that makes it almost impossible to engage with the various diverse subcommunities around the United States. And that makes it that's possibly even more difficult to navigate because you're stuck together in this kind of broken family. And so Wright concludes, in the years to come, the appeal of pulling the plug on the American experiment is likely to grow even among faithful adherents to the idea of federal power. And if the union dissolves again, it will not be along a clean line, but in the words of Kreitner, everywhere and all at once. So a, a really interesting take drawing on that con constructivist analysis, those those discourses that and ideas that Americans have weaved about around their history and how that's now falling apart. I mean, what were your thoughts on the piece, Ben? And, and what kind of implications do you think we can draw from that for American foreign policy? Yeah, I mean, it was a great reflective piece. And it's true that the notion of an America as a kind of monolithic entity is has always been not just overstated, but like the piece calls mm -hmm. it a myth. There's a lot of like meaning attached to what a myth is that like I don't 
I don't know if it's exactly correct or precise, but it gets to the point, I guess, which is that like there's an imagined sense of what America is or an idea. Yeah. And that's what everybody sort of cosigns. But the language, how they interpret some of that language in the contract is a little widely divergent and increasingly more and more divergent, you know? And then on top of that, like what what's emerging in this era of, of Trumpian gaslighting and stuff is even the reactionaries in America who used to be reactionary in the sense that they're conservative and hold to tradition and whatever their sense of tradition was in American history, they were the ones who were like clinging to the constitution for dear life. But like an increasing proportion of them don't believe in the need to have fidelity to the constitution. They're more and more willing to sort of throw the Bible out. And that's on top of the fact that to begin with the idealized sense of what America is, was not uniformly understood the same way. I lived in California, different parts of California. Uh, I was stationed in Texas when I was in the military. I grew up in Florida, grew up in, I was born in Maryland on the East Coast. I lived in Indiana for several years. I've literally lived in every part of America and each experience was wildly different and unpredictably or unsurprisingly, you know, living in the South and living in the Midwest, that was not for me. It fucking sucked actually. I hated it. But I, I never didn't recognize it as America. Uh, like to me, there was a, a, an ongoing kind of synthesis of these dissonances. I knew that the America that I appreciated was more on the coast, right? I knew that the America that I saw as deeply problematic but still American was in the South and in parts of the Midwest, right? Like the mm. racism is part of America but so is fucking coffee culture. You know what I mean? Like the things that you love and hate are part of America. Um, Starbucks and, and slavery. That's right. They go together. <laughs> Howard Schultz, <laughs> if you're looking to sponsor a podcast, we... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got inventory. So... Yeah, I mean, like, this is very... It's hilarious, but we're making... This is a fucking serious thing, too. Like... Um, there is some serious brokenness. And like I think the notion that America's existence and rise is very contingent is very true. And we've always failed to resolve and simply papered over, kicked the can down the road on the massive gaping differences between us. Like there's a huge it's not just that like we papered over Indian genocide and the settler colonialism that built America or that it's like this we've we relied on we, America as a nation was like an oligarchy for so long um but we maintained a democratic like some democratic processes that we gradually expanded right and so it's not like it's not just that we had this dark history that we try to paper over unresolved but there are like ongoing major problems in society that are getting worse and there, this notion of like an external threat that unifies us, I don't know how I feel about that. So like in one sense, I think it's, it's historically true, but I know from being in coexisting in all these different versions of America, there is a sense of unifiedness there. Even the parts of America that like I disagree with and hate, I still like, I still have some kind of attachment to. And if that's true, then this piece is somewhat overstated. I think you can find deep political ruptures within any democratic society. Like even in New Zealand, in the rural areas versus the cities or Pakeha versus yeah. Maori, like the you have very different understandings of what the proper history of New Zealand should be, right? Or like how people should live or what the appropriate idea of being Kiwi is. You know, that you can find divergences and, and conflicts, but there is something right now that is deeper in America. When you point to the secessionist movement in California or Texas or whatever, that's always been there and it's always been fringe and so therefore unserious. But conspiracy theories in America have also always been there and always been fringe. And now they're in the White House. Now they have millions of Facebook mm. followers. Now they're like the source of mass mobilization. So like... 
secession and like a rupture of America, it's definitely a low probability thing. But the conditions are getting riper for it to be a real thing. And that's really tragic and scary. And the thing that nobody, I think everybody sort of sees this happening. If you're in America, it's understandable why you would downplay this, right? It's, it's like a reflexivity principle. Mm. Like you don't want to influence the experiment the wrong way. So you downplay it, right? But why is the rest, like the rest of the world is not pricing in America's downfall still. Like nobody, I don't see any foreign policies around the world, maybe fucking China, who are making sort of like national security strategies for the day that America like collapses in on itself. Like that is something that countries should be actively sort of thinking through as a real risk. And like you read this piece, you don't even have to know anything else. Read this piece and you see that there's a real risk here that you need to think through how to manage or mitigate or like try and influence, right? And that's not really happening. That part is weird to me. Nobody is nobody is like building an expectation that this will happen even as they see the conditions are ripening yeah. for it. Although the conditions are ripening, you like you say, Van, do you think they may be overstating the possibility of a civil war? Because civil war is so brutal, especially modern civil wars yeah. are so brutal and the cleavages need to be so deep that they're almost insurmountable. Civil and conflict is you, going to yeah. happen. It's going to happen. Do you see do you see the differences as insurmountable? Like do you see that Birmingham, Alabama is ever going to be deracialized in that regard? You know the only pathway I see I say civil conflict, not civil war, but the only pathway mm. I see to like a more stable future in America is a tragic one where it's basically rule by technocracy and plutocracy. And so you have this, the tale of two cities aspect of America, which has always been there, gets much worse. And like the rule of the 1% or the oligarchs, like the corporate world takeover of America kind of thing. I could see that because when you have the, the Mark Zuckerbergs in charge, they have an interest in not fueling these conflicts and in creating the semblance of order, even if it means papering over big differences. And it's true. I think that everybody is getting stupider. Even smart people are getting stupider. And so it's going to be easier to control people in large numbers when we're all dumb and mm -hmm. and we're all reliant on the same sets of like platforms to conduct daily life. I could see a sort of like semi-dystopian technocratic future that's basically like neoliberal optimism that pushes off a kind of like civil war style rupture indefinitely, but where the differences remain and it is not a happy alternative future. Like it's, it's still very much a tale of two cities kind of problem, but accentuated on both ends. And that's super bleak. Oh, fuck you. That is super bleak. Yeah. You're right. Very good piece, though, in the sense of like forcing us to look at what's happening in a deeper way and contemplate possibilities that seemed uncontemplatable even like five years ago. I mean, podcasting it as, as an audio audio medium. Um, so to just give a description of what's happening right now, I'm sitting in an empty room, lying on a couch, staring in grim despair at a blank wall <laughs> after that conversation. Yeah. Holy <laughs> fuck. So, so really yeah. <laughs> might have to find a way to like shorten the conversation a little when we're editing because that's like fucking awful. <laughs> All right, time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. All right, so we've got uh, three questions today. The first one is from Ayn Randy Have you seen the Dick Cheney biopic with Christian Bale yet? How accurate is it in your estimation? So this movie called Vice, um, the uh, it it's pretty good and like kind of funny, and I can't even tell if that's that's what new humor is or if it's not supposed to be funny and it is. I just it's like a I didn't know either. <laughs> I couldn't tell. But yeah, definitely some funny parts. The movie presents Cheney as this power hungry guy who is implicitly a villain because he's so power hungry. It is true that he is a bit of a villain and it's true that uh, he is like, he was 
quite cynical about power for a long time, but the movie doesn't explore like his motives and um, like what it just reduces him to this power calculation guy. And it was not really that simple. Um, so James Mann, who's done some like amazing books on U.S. foreign policy in the past, he he wrote this book called The Rise of the Vulcans. Um, and in it, he talks about the rise of the neoconservative class in U.S. elite politics and in U.S. foreign policy and how Dick Cheney uh, became um, part of that movement. And those are the guys who all staffed the Bush administration. And they're the guys who created the Iraq War in 2003. And so um, Cheney, his motivations were this mixture of neoconservatism plus the shock of 9-11 and mm. the recognition that like planes can hit buildings, anything can happen. And he becomes the proponent of what we now understand as the 1% doctrine. So it's like if there's a 1% chance that terrorists or bad guys can attack the United States with something that is just devastating, we have to do everything in our power to stop it. So we Lots put us to do anything. Yes. Like, cause everything, there's like a 1% chance of like yeah. everything. Happening. <laughs> yeah. And so that is how you rationalize the Iraq war and much more. That's how you rationalize torture. That's how you rationalize extraordinary rendition. That's how you rationalize everything, you know, everything bad under this 1% doctrine rubric. And so like, it came from this weird place of like believing in American power and uh, America's force in the world. That's neoconservatism combined with the insecurity of what of what 9-11 brought. And it is like that James Mann describes that those combinations as like his ideological drive or motivation for the decisions that he made. And like you you don't really get that from the movie. It just presents him as this this power guy like Machiavellian and like, that's not the whole story, but I mean, I didn't see anything inaccurate in the movie is the thing. So like, it's like everything you see, that's all real or fair. I think. Is George Bush really like that? <laughs> that's my question. Cause yeah. he's in the, in the film, he's, he's painted as the most incompetent person <laughs> that could ever run for president. He's he, painted as like the most physically worst person you could possibly have. He's not intelligent in in the he's not book smart let's say that he's smart in a social sense and he had like contextual intelligence um and like eq okay. he has high eq which i think as most presidents usually have but yeah he doesn't know things he's not a good analyst <laughs> he doesn't know things <laughs> uh so the second question is anonymous what's your view on how the left should respond when trump does things we like you know, that's a very good question. I, I'm not, I haven't totally made up my mind about this, but the thing that we cannot do is uh, be his cheerleader or be his supporter. Yep. You would say like, well, don't you want him to pull out of Afghanistan, right? Don't you want him to not go to war with North Korea? And it's like, yes, but if you become his legitimizer on those decisions, they are not separable from the militarism in general. They're not separable from his multiple acts of treason, his felonious conduct, his overt racism, from his mili the deep militarism, the m disgusting graft and corruption, and the impressive amounts of military spending that are happening, the body count that continues to rise because of a f botched COVID response. All of that is part of the same machine that produces the one little thing that you like. And so mm -hmm. if he produces something you like, take it, but don't ever stop criticizing him. Maybe if it's some, maybe it's like, oh, you really want him to get out of Afghanistan. So don't criticize him for pulling out of Afghanistan, but don't praise it either. Don't defend him. Just leave it. Focus on, focus your, your voice is the weapon. Your criticism has to constantly be barraging him, attacking him. And so just choose your targets so that you're not shooting yourself, you know, like that. I guess I'm making this up in real time, but like that is basically what I do. I never, ever, ever praise that fuck because he's destroying the world and he might actually yeah. end up destroying the world. You can't praise that. But, you know, the broken watch might 
tell the right time once in a while. And so like, that's not a reason <laughs> to cheer. Just take it, you know? No, I, I couldn't agree more, Van. It's sort of like, it sounds hyperbolic, but you know, even Hitler was really good on animal rights, but that doesn't <laughs> negate anything he did, wow. anything else he did. Wow. It's true. It, it, it doesn't yeah. negate anything else he did, but he was nice to animals, you know, but that doesn't matter. Good taste in like, art. Could, yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, so the final question for this week is from Richard Verma. Do you have a philosophy about saying yes or no to career opportunities? I tuned into your panel at the U.S. Institute of Peace yesterday and wondered how those things come together. Yeah. So there's like a couple of questions in the way this was worded. Um, so I'll just take it in the direction that is convenient for me. So I, <laughs> I was talking to somebody about this recently, actually. In the beginning of my career, I said yes to everything, even though it was super exhausting. But it was like, you need to be open to the universe. I'm a super lucky person. There might be something to the, the idea that like you kind of create conditions for your own luck. I don't know if that's true. May, I, I, I'm, I'm inclined to think that it is true a little bit. And one of the ways that you do that is by jumping on every opportunity that even remotely passes by you. Like you just seize on it, you know, and the cost, there's a cost to that, which is why like not everybody does it because it costs your time, your commitment, your, your level of effort that you have to put in. And you don't know how, when you say yes to something, you don't, there, there is no clear pathway for like how it will pay off. And so it's like you're taking a gamble each time, but the cost of the gamble is quite low. It's just that you have to use up your time and your mental bandwidth and your effort or whatever, or put yourself out of your comfort zone, uh, especially when it's stuff like public speaking or media or whatever. So like I was saying yes to everything. It's a biased sample. It seems like it worked out for me, <laughs> but like it is true that had I been like selective in the beginning and said no to lots of stuff that I would not have stumbled into certain opportunities. Like my first, my dissertation became, uh, I revised it and I got it published as my first book with Cambridge university press because I was coming from a, a PhD program that was not highly ranked at a Catholic university. I didn't have the prestige factor that most people have for academia. Um, and so I needed a prestigious publisher for my first book to compensate for that. But the only reason I got my book at Cambridge was because uh, I, I knew a guy who was teaching at the Naval War College who introduced me because he published a book with Cambridge. So he introduced me to the editor and I only knew him because somebody asked me to do a meeting with him one day when I was working at the Pentagon because they didn't have time to do it and I didn't have time for it either. But he was doing interviews with policy officials um, to, for a book that he was working on. And like I did not want to do it because I didn't have time, but I said yes anyway. And uh, it turns off that like we hit it off and then he invited me to do like a guest lecture at the Naval War College. And then before you know it, it's this thing that creates this opportunity to publish like a very high prestige book. And that becomes like a very important milestone in an alternative career pathway. And then my second book, which got a lot of press and notoriety and like I, I leveraged my second book to do a lot of like public facing stuff and I got the academic prestige of the second book also being with Cambridge that was only because the Cambridge editor asked me to do the book and the only reason they asked me to do the book was because I had the first book with them in the in to begin with that's one of about a million examples of like I couldn't have done this myself and I couldn't have cold called a prestigious publisher like Cambridge, I had to get introduced and networked in. And it was only that that pathway was only possible. I had to do a lot of work. You know, I had to like, quote unquote, work hard along that entire pathway. <laughs> but it wasn't my work that did it. It was the fucking the good fortune of basically luck that resulted from me saying yes to something small once upon a time, you know. And so now I don't say yes to everything because I, I literally can't. I'm so fucking stretched thin. It's ridiculous. Like, I feel like I complain about that far too often. I shouldn't complain about it. But I can't, I can't say yes to everything now. And I have not figured out how to say no to things either. So like, I feel bad 
every time I do say no. And I don't know if I'm, I'm always wondering if I'm like turning down the wrong thing and like, what if that was how I get the Nobel Peace Prize or something, you know? And so, <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe I'm not like the greatest source of advice here on this. But in the beginning, it's like say yes to everything that you possibly can and then be more selective as you are forced to be more selective because you just don't have the bandwidth or whatever. And then that's very different from the U.S. Institute of Peace thing. I, I got asked to do that panel because the, the guy who works at USIP who hosted the event reached out to me because he wanted a bunch of iconoclastic people uh, ideologically to be together. So that's how I got in. So what I got from that was it uh, doesn't matter how hard you work, it's all a gamble anyway. Don't get stretched too thin. <laughs> what? Thanks, Jake. Jesus. Did you tune out? Is that hedonistic life? Uh, wow. Don't do anything this way for someone to ask. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic for. Uh, you know, keeping us alive, funding us. If you want to rate us on iTunes or wherever you're listening, that's pretty sweet. Also, sweet as, whatever. All right, gang. See you next time. Peace. <laughs>